0: Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting
1: episode of Oil and Gas On Shore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeca, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm sitting here this afternoon at the Canon with Mr. Brandon Hiltz, Project Drilling Manager. Thanks for coming to the show, my man. How you doing? Hey, thank you for having me this morning over here. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Good, man. Good. For those who don't know, Brandon's probably the baddest engineer out there. Before getting into the oil field, he spent most of his time in the octagon. So, we met actually while you were at Oxy as an intern. We went out for lunch with a mutual friend who was also working at Oxy at the time. You were working as a drilling intern, right? Correct. I was. And at that time, I was attending the University of Texas. Okay. So, you were going to school and working with Oxy.
0: That's correct. Oh, wow. So, how does that work? So, I guess to back up, I, I started going back to school in 2010 and at that time, I attended the community college and was working for Lewis Energy down in the Eagleford. Okay. And they essentially gave me a flex schedule. I'd run run to campus and attend classes that I only met once a week or twice a week. And then I'd run to the rig the rest of the week, you know, which is only a few hours drive from Austin where I was living at the time.
1: Okay. Like running into the rig as in working on the rig? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And I worked different roles.
0: You know, sometimes I'd be an extra company man if there was downhole issues on a rig whatever called for. It. I mean, it was really busy at the time in Eagleford. It was booming and, and right. Rod Lewis was bringing out a lot of new
1: rigs. And so it was kind of jump in where help was needed. So you were, you were going to school and then you were working for Lewis whenever you had the opportunity to go out there. And so, but you know, and, and again, I have the utmost respect for guys that actually have a history of working on the rigs. I knew we'd hit it off right away. Cause we both kind of come, we're cut from the same cloth, working, drilling rigs, you know, getting our hands dirty and realizing, hey, there's a better life out there, for us anyway. So, tell us a bit of the backstory before life as a professional engineer, even before you were, you know, going to college and working with Lewis. What what led you to get to this point?
0: Yeah, it's a long journey. So,
1: I grew up in the Midwest.
0: So, a lot of people think I'm a Southern boy because I've been down here for so long, but I actually grew up in the Midwest, different, different parts, Illinois, Kansas, Kansas City, and, uh, My mother's side's from Texas, so that's my ties down here.
1: Nice. So are you upset about Kansas City losing? I'm a a massive Chiefs fan. Are you? Oh, man. Thanks for bringing that up. I
0: appreciate
1: that. Yeah, that was a tough loss. So we'll see what the Rams can do this weekend. I don't know when this airs, but either way, I'm hoping for a Rams win. I think that'd be pretty neat. But I'm upset. Kansas City's, I mean, especially with Bahamas, he's... Such a good quarterback. Anyway, didn't need to get off on a tangent. When you said Kansas City, I had to bring it up. Hey, we could talk about the Chiefs for in about an hour. I'm good for that. So. <laughs> nice, nice. Okay. Uh,
0: no, but essentially, you know, I was an underachiever as a kid. And half the time I was going to school, half the time I wasn't. Okay. And, you know, kind of realized I was going down a bad path and ended up dropping out of high school and got a GED and I had it all lined up. I went to the Army recruiter and said, hey, you know, can I get in on a GED? you know, get my parents to sign off on a waiver. And they said, well, we'll get back to you. And they, they sure enough said, yeah, we can get you in on a GED waiver. Wow. So I had everything lined up. I dropped out, took the GED test that week, had my parents sign and enlisted. Wow.
1: What made you, if you don't mind, or if it's something you don't want to talk about, it's totally fine. What made you drop out of high school?
0: I was an underachiever. You know, I was you know, not interested in being there and <laughs> academics was was not my strong suit, Okay.
1: primarily because I wasn't putting an effort forward. Sure. So you were just bored and you're like, there's got to be something else better out there. Than yeah, happening. drinking beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, I, hey, that's common. And so again, okay, just trying to get a good understanding, you know, where it all began. So anyway, go ahead. So yeah, running around, getting in trouble,
0: made that decision to get into the Army. My mom happily signed off for me to go. Mm-hmm. And it was a great decision because that, you know, serving in the infantry was a big part of how
1: I carry myself and, and conduct my business today. Wow. Well, firstly, much it and thank you for your service along with the rest of the U.S. I'm sure they greatly appreciate
0: it. No, I appreciate that. So Absolutely. it was a win for me. But I realized I didn't want to do it for a full career and had an opportunity after I got out to get into the oil field. I met a guy named Steve Stringfellow. He's a close family friend. Okay. He's my mentor. Who was he working
1: for at the time when you met him? Do you remember?
0: He was either with Baker or Weatherford at the time. He's a liner hanger and expandables expert internationally. He's worked all over. Cool. He has a similar story to me. West Texas guy, worked the rigs, went back to school in his thirties and got a degree with a family. Wow. Kind of modeled my career actually around oh, yeah.
1: him. Man, everyone needs a mentor. I strongly believe that.
0: Yeah. So Steve's been a big proponent and his wife, Melanie, of, of helping me make decisions as I've moved along. But he, he essentially got me my first rough and job and you know, broke into my first pair of boots. and
1: Nice. How old were you when you broke out?
0: In my 20s, early 20s. and Okay. So, yeah, I've been doing it for a while.
1: Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's good. Cool. So, what happened? So, you, you went to the rigs. How long did you work the rigs, and, and kind of what led you up into going to school?
0: Worked the rigs for a number of years, and then we got to '09 during the downturn. I'm sorry. I should say the recession. There was a little bit of a downturn in commodity prices at the time. Right. And my wife we had just had, we had our first and she got pregnant back to back. I think five or six months after we had the first, the second one was in the oven. And I said, all right, this
1: is probably a great time to go back to school. (laughs) Right. When the odds are against you, you plunge right in. Yeah. Back's against the wall. You make a run for it. That's common amongst people that are, you know, kind of reach the upper echelons. It's it's like they're driven off the pressure and, and defeating odds and That's a good character trait, man. So I have to applaud you for that.
0: Yeah, it was great. You know, you can't do it without a big support cast around you. You know, one, my wife, she's phenomenal. You know, here she is, got an infant and then one in the oven. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to go back to school. I had people helping me at Lewis. That, that was a great group of people that said, hey, we'll work this flex schedule with you. Yeah. You know why you, you try to work towards a degree. I think a lot of people thought it was a long shot because I said, yeah, I'm going to get a petroleum engineering degree at UT. And they're like, yeah, OK, you have
1: GED. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet the more people that told you you couldn't do it, you're like, wait, watch me. I knew for a fact it was going to happen. Yeah. And I never thought I was going to go anywhere
0: other than UT. And I, I think. Why UT? I, we lived in Austin. That explains quite a bit,
1: actually. Yeah, we were in Lubbock.
0: <laughs> it would have been tech, and I just didn't yeah. want to move again. My wife had, my wife was working, and we had the kids, and her family is there in Austin, so nice. it just made sense to be there. It would have been a challenge to go to another city to go to school.
1: Okay, so while in Austin, and the reason I started the podcast with mentioning that you were one of the baddest engineers—I mean, you got a pretty lengthy history in the octagon fighting. Would you mind telling a little bit about that and how you got into it? Because I know that was a big part of your life for a while, wasn't it? Yeah, so I've been been
0: involved in martial arts for a number of years. I would say now I'm not so much involved. I'm, I'm focused on my career and family. But yeah. I actually started out as an amateur boxer and then transitioned over into kickboxing and MMA. And mm-hmm. and, and I just had a long amateur career. I actually, okay. I didn't fight in the UFC in the octagon. And you know, I did in the regional circuit for a legacy fighting championship, which is a pretty big organization here in Texas. And That's crazy. Man. Heavily involved. Involved in amateur boxing and did a lot of coaching for a lot of professionals and big organizations, UFC, Bellator, ESPN boxing. I, I was really fortunate that while my career was at the amateur level and, and lengthy, I was around a lot of top-tier fighters that, that brought me along their journey and, and wanted me to help them. So I really was fortunate to be a part of their dreams and, okay. and successes.
1: Man, that's exciting. I mean, that's cool. You don't get to meet a lot of people. You hear a lot of people that have kind of lived that life and have gone through it. But I mean, what would you say your favorite memory of being an octagon or, or living sort of in that lifestyle? Do you have anything that really stands out? Or another way I'm going to ask that question is being involved with martial arts. I mean, there's a significant amount of discipline. You're getting the crap knocked out of you. You keep coming back. Was there sort of something that you learned from it or something that really gave you a certain foundation for, for who you are now?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a ton of takeaways from going and being a martial artist, whether you compete and fight or or you just go to the gym and you want to get the workout. Any dedication to a craft or an art you're perfecting, you have to put time in. And so you have to be committed to doing that. And there's no shortcuts. You're, you're not going to go train for six months and, and think you're going to hop in with guys that and, and gals that have been around you know, training for 10 years for example. So that's one thing you learn to be committed to a craft and put your time in. And the devil's in the details. You know, if you're not trying to master one little mechanic you know, 10,000 times before you feel like you finally got it down, then you're not gonna be where the next person is because I guarantee you they're doing it. Yeah. If you're not up at four in the morning, you know, running, getting your road work in, well, you're probably a step behind your competitor because there definitely are. and I, I definitely apply that to my work career. You know, I get up and get after it, and I, I know people are still in bed, and I'm out there trying to make, you know, execute whatever the business goals are. But in terms of, you know, big accomplishments in martial arts or the fighting career, you know, no particular fights stand out to me. I, You know, I did have one that meant something to me because there were two brothers that I came up with. They were my stable mates in boxing, the Ortiz brothers in Austin. And we had a little bit of a falling out, and we hadn't seen each other for a while. Yeah. But— you know, when I had a fight coming up, they showed up even through all that and, and vice versa. when Mike Ortiz, he had to go to the championship for the Golden Gloves, he called me up to make sure I was there, come wrap his hands. And it, it's just that camaraderie you get. And even wow. if you kind of have a little disagreement and some time away, it's like family, right? Yeah. You look past it all. And I say another one was a big memory was I was coaching Kamal Shalarus. We were in the WEC at the time mm-hmm. and he was fighting on. It was in Arizona on the Phoenix card where Benson Henderson and Anthony Pettis fought. It was the kick heard around the world? Where he jumps off the cage, probably everybody's seen that highlight. And we were a couple fights before that, and it was a contender fight. He, if Kamal beat Bart Polishewski, then he was going to fight the winner of Benson and Pettis, and he did. We got that win, and instead of getting the title fight in the WEC, the WEC was absorbed by the UFC, and so Kamal ultimately got a UFC contract, and then I went on with him. When he started his UFC career. So it was a you know, you a lot of blood and tears to get there and then you you get a win that's a tough win and it's just, you know, it's amazing.
1: Wow. That, that's so cool. And I have to commend you. You obviously I'm just gonna guess, but you probably won more fights than you lost and just simply looking at your ears. Like you don't look like you had many bouts to the head. So I commend you for that. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I lose more fights at the house with my wife than
0: I <laughs> ever did anything.
1: But overall, then that's a win, I feel like. You yeah. know, it's a net win if you accept the losses at the house.
0: Yeah, no, I, I wasn't, my grappling game was a little weak. And that's why my ears don't, <laughs> don't look like a lot of my friends. But I got a few scars on my face from boxing and, and yeah. MMA for sure.
1: Nice. Let's take a little bit of a shift here. So what were some of the challenges, you know, you said you worked rigs, going back to school and living in school after you know, cuz you went back to school at what age? 31, 32. In your 30s. So I'm 40 now. So you were obviously one of the older guys or people in your class going to, you know, it's UT, right? I started at the community college, Austin Community College, and, right. and there you have a lot of
0: non-traditional students if you will going back. So right. you saw a lot there were people that were retired going to the Austin Community College. So I didn't feel that yet. Okay. You know, it was once I got to the university that you saw the age difference kind of stand out.
1: So did you think the maturity factor, obviously you had that, did it help you going back later or do you wish you had kind of went back right after high school or, you know, kind of made the natural transition going from high school to college?
0: You know, it's funny how life turns out. I absolutely would have failed at college. I mean, I dropped out of high school, right? So that kind of says it all. Yeah. I wasn't disciplined at that time and that age to go and put the work in to, to get a degree, especially, you know, in an engineering curriculum. Right. So having gone through life and been older, been through the military, you know, established, you know, somewhat of a fight career and been involved with martial arts and boxing. It just, yeah, it kind of definitely made it easier for me. Balancing family, balancing working and going to school, making sure I had good enough grades
1: to transfer to UT after a couple of years at the community college. Wow. Man, that's quite the story. So let's let's kind of shift a little bit here. The focus being, you know, obviously you're a drilling project manager coming out of school, you started off working for Chevron, is that correct? Yes, sir, that's oh, correct. Tell us a little bit about what your experience over there at a major nonetheless.
0: So, I'll go one step backwards. When I when I transferred to UT, my goal was to get into deep water. Yeah. And I was actually going to go, I had an offer with BP. And it was just going to be a traditional internship in the summers, and I was about to sign that that offer. And then Richard Jackson, who at the time was vice president of drilling and completions for Oxy, came to Austin to meet me and interview me. He had got a hold of my resume and wanted to get. You know, it was booming twenty two thousand twelve. Everybody was trying to find talent, especially guys with ops experience. Getting into engineering is, is still a tough find. Right. And he just sold me on on him and 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 Oxy. He's a if you ever get a chance to meet Richard he's a phenomenal person and and he's moved up quickly at oxy he's a he's a high pot for sure okay. and he just made me an offer I couldn't refuse hey I'll put you to work year-round you know I said you know what I'll do that and so I, I passed up deep water at that time okay. and so ultimately what happened was when I got closer to graduation I just evaluated was I interested in the money or was I interested in the experience and I'd already been kind of going with lower amounts of money going through school and working yeah. that I was more interested in the experience. So that made me kind That's of, yeah, it made me seek out deep water. And I was really lucky because we were right in the middle of a bus when I graduated. That's when everything kicked off. Yeah. And Chevron made the offer for me to come on to deep water.
1: So, nice. And what was your role with Chevron?
0: came on as a field drilling and completions engineer on a sixth generation drill ship in the Gulf of Mexico. Wow. Working in the lower tertiary trend. My first year I spent on the Pacific Santa Ana and it was an exploration rig and I was a part of the anchor discovery and the Gibson discovery was there's challenges to working for a major you know I think the one thing I was surprised about Was that it made you work a lot harder than what I thought. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of people at a major and they're going to kind of dole out a little bit of work for everybody. To where you could deke out and hide a little bit. (laughs) And that wasn't my goal. But, you know, I figured it would be a smaller part of a bigger operation. And I never worked harder in my life than I did for Chevron. It was the most demanding job I've ever had to date. I want to maybe not compare to the infantry,
1: but you know, in terms of oil and gas, sure. by far the most difficult. So, what would be, and you don't have to get into the weeds, but what would be it like describe why it was that demanding or that you know, that it was that much work for
0: you know, the deep water business unit at Chevron somewhat operates differently than the rest of the company in that they, they tend to bring over their more talented candidates, if you will, and people they have expectations for, but they, they expect a lot out of you as a result. Wow. And so once they identify you as somebody who, who is a worker and can produce results, and in the deep water, that's all they're caring about. They want results. They're going to lean on you. And when they lean on you, they lean on you good. And it's a good thing because you, you find out what you're made of when, you know, you don't sleep much when you're offshore. You might go thirty six hours without sleeping, catnapping catnapping on a couch, and there's a lot of rig operations that are like that. But
1: yeah, it's kind of comes in cycles. You bust your butt for six, eight, ten, twelve hours, and then you got maybe an hour to relax. And so yeah, I can I can appreciate that for sure.
0: So yeah, it was it's pretty much you get offshore, get to the rig, and you could be blowing and going for fourteen days like that. And it's not just the fact that you're sleep deprived. And don't get me wrong, if you need to shut down, they're going to take care of you and let you go
1: right cuz of course just like any operation safety is the number one absolutely concert, right? they run it they run a phenomenal
0: organization i mean and you can imagine deep water there's no expense spared yeah but just the the acuity needed for the engineering work and the operations it's just at a higher level you combine that all together and you don't want to let them down i mean when you when you're identified as somebody who can do good work you take a lot of pride in that because that's a group that is not easy to succeed in They're right. they're high demands. Wow. So you want to, you want to go the extra mile for them. So it was the best thing I ever did for my career was take a lot less money. Yeah. But for a phenomenal experience.
1: Hey, that says a lot because most people are so concerned with instant gratification and not many people are willing to sacrifice short term, you know, I wouldn't call it pain, but for lack of better words, short-term pain for long-term success. So I again, I commend you for that. What Working offshore, and again, this is a, a podcast focused on onshore, but I think the experience needs to be at least um, exposed. So was there any sort of unique and more so focused on the completion side? Was there anything that, not necessarily Chevron specific, but was there something out there that you found either fascinating or sort of something that you guys did different than you do on land when working in deep water. Is there anything that comes to mind?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So after my first year doing exploratory work, they had me go over to Discover Clear Leader, which was executing completions in the Jack St. Milo field. And completions for that field are, are multi-zone, one-trip run completion job. So instead of a plug-and-perf setup like you see on land, you run in with the multi-zone tool that allows you to essentially shift slots open to access the zones you want to perf and then frack oh
1: wow
0: so you're, you're not making trips in and out of the hole you run you run this multi-zone tool that Halliburton provides and um, it's a complicated tool it's very intricate and there's a lot of engineering work to make it happen and, and sometimes things go wrong with it okay. but it's something you they do have on shore it's just not cost effective
1: so is that ran in a vertical well or a deviated or horizontal well
0: these are mostly all your wells offshore would be considered vertical they might have a slight tangent in them
1: right and i guess that makes sense you're talking about isolating different zones so horizontally that wouldn't even make sense so yeah for listeners out there you can picture you've got a well drilled offshore and you run a tool that if you look at say a sandwich you could isolate the bread from the meat from the cheese and essentially produce from those zones is there any order of which those zones get produced or is it do you even know or like how do they determine like, oh, we're going to just all of a sudden isolate this zone today or how does that work? And
0: I'm very segregated at Chevron, so I'm not sure exactly what they do on the production side, you. but, you know, they are intelligent completions and and there's, there's injection mandrels and they definitely have full ability to monitor hydrocarbon flow and separate out per zone and, and manipulate accordingly. And I, I can imagine they do.
1: Wow, so you were responsible for actually sort of deploying the tool and making sure that it was set up ready for production, is
0: that? Correct, correct. Okay. So we'd spot up on the well, set up the production tree, and then start you know, removing barriers that were set in place by the drilling, the drill ship okay. in order to TNA the well. God and then you start working towards it. There's a lot of prep work just to get to where you can run the multi-zone tool.
1: Oh, I'd imagine.
0: You know, and I think we were 60 some days when I got there on completion jobs and we got them down to low 50 range. So, nice. so you're, you know, almost two months on one completion job on one well and you know $100 million plus into the thing. So not That's, cheap.
1: Those numbers are hard to wrap your head around. Let's fast forward a little bit to where your current employer, you're working more on the drilling side and their focus more into the peons. What is unique about where you're at now doing what you're doing? And it's more specifically related to to the peons. Can you describe what the peons is and sort of the technology that's used to drill there, some of the challenges and things that you've experienced while at your current employer?
0: So specifically to the peons in in terms of technology and, and drilling execution, They're multi-well pad operations, so depending on the pad, you can have anywhere from eight to 40 wellheads, 40 slots, I should say, and they're seven and a half foot spaced out center to center. So you bring on a rig, you spot on, and you execute one well, and then you skid over seven and a half feet, and you're on the next one, and you work your way down down the line. And a function of that design, the wells need to be drilled in a build hole drop design or an S shaped well. Okay. So you can kick out away from the pad and then drop back down vertically and space out your bottom holes and nice. and exploit the, the reservoir.
1: And what formation is typically targeted up there?
0: That's the Mesa Verde formation that we're the Williams fork is what they call it.
1: Okay, that's a gas play, is that? It
0: is. It's a dry gas play, and it, it's a lenticular sand. Okay. So just think pockets of sand here and there. When we're drilling, we don't have the sands identified. We know we're going to intersect some sands, and then when we look at the case toll logs after the well's drilled, then we identify where we're actually going to, you know, perf and frac.
1: Okay. So it is you perf them and you still frac them. Correct. Okay very interesting. Are there any sort of unique drilling applications or technology that apply to that area? And if so, you know, what are some of the challenges? I remember just from, you know, working in Denver and bidding out some work from a drilling fluid standpoint up there, there's a high susceptibility for lost circulation, isn't there in some some of those formations? Absolutely. So the peons. You know, it's an a out-of-favor,
0: mature basin. Operators have been, you know, you talk to people, they were there 15 years ago and longer, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a fairly old field. It's it? an
0: old field, and when we took over and came up there, I didn't change any of the design. I mean, with the BHA is the same, the well design is the same. Strictly on the operational execution, did we make a lot of step changes, and a lot of that was a result of just bringing in guys that I had worked with in deep water and other basins from around the world that had just been in more, you know, class one critical wells, that type of experience, instead of kind of a local, local knowledge where, you know, it's kind of how we always done it. And we we shook it up. And and as a function, we we cut times 50 to 70 percent in the first year. Wow,
1: that's huge. And, And if you can slap on a dollar figure to that, I mean, do you have any idea on how much money that is you're talking? It's quite a bit because for less capital plan
0: to be deployed for that year, we think we got 12 extra wells, and we were, I think, uh, close to 20 percent under budget on the capex drilling budget.
1: And then, if you relate that, or if you calculate that, going into how much more you were able to produce, I mean, that's for as a company that that's adds so much value. It's incredible. Huge value, and then time
0: value of money, right? So you're getting the wells drilled quicker. You're getting time to markets reduced, and you're getting your present value of money a lot faster.
1: Wow! And that's the name of the game. So a field like that. Is it do people come and go into fields like that as a function of gas price or is there more like why would a, a field like that be attractive for most operators or some operators that are looking to, say, pick up some assets? I mean, w- what's favorable about that area?
0: I think it is definitely susceptible to commodity price. So, you know, if the margins are thin. So if you if you go in, into the Piance, you you probably have a a technical advantage. And, and for, for my company that I'm with, they, they basically just were private equity back. So they brought in talent to say, let's go in here and what I call the reality makeover. Let's go in here and rework this with a high level of talent with less resources and reduce costs, whether it's GNA reductions, material, you know, managing the unit cost across the board, operational execution, et cetera. And that allows you to increase those margins on those projects just a little bit more and then you're not as susceptible to commodity prices you know it gives you a more insulation
1: interesting what are your thoughts on the future of gas plays or if you want to be more specific of the pions
0: the pions there's definitely some running room left in the mesa Verde, depending on where your acreage position is and then there's there's some other formations that operators are exploring i won't go into that they haven't been tapped yet So there's definitely some running room if people can unlock that the challenge with with the peons is that it sits in the cig market and gas differentials really hurt your net back per mcf so you know if you're at henry hub over in louisiana you're you're getting spot price on gas but if you're up there in the rockies where we're at you know you're taking 60 70 cents per mcf hit right off the top
1: wow That's interesting. Well, look, Brandon, I surely appreciate your time. I wanted to take a quick break here. Everyone out there listening, please do me a huge favor and take a few minutes to leave a review on iTunes. I'll even help you out on explaining how to do it. If you have an iPhone, open the podcast app, tap library. And if you're a subscriber or search for the show, if you aren't tap the show logo, scroll down and tap the five stars, then write a review. So Brandon, You know, enough about work. What do you like to do for fun? And what's your favorite hobby or thing outside of oil and gas that you and the family like to do?
0: Outside of oil and gas, the family and I we're we're big into Houston sports. So you know, going catching Rockets games, Astros games. That's big for us. Actually, haven't gone to a Texans game yet. Yeah, waiting for somebody to offer some tickets.
1: Okay, <laughs> hint hint out there for any vendor who wants to please Brandon. Yeah, send sure. him some tickets next season. <laughs> He's ready
0: to go. That's right. So yeah, we love going to the Rockets games. That's that's a big one, and both my kids love it. And actually, we we
1: go over to soccer games as well. So nice, dude. Harden is on fire right now. I got to say, it's a good time to be in Houston if you're a Rockets fan. All right, well, now it's time for our sponsor giveaway. Tendek is known for its innovation in advanced completions and production optimization. And speaking of innovation, how cool is this? A mini portable projector for all you techies out there. It's a goodie mini LED projector, perfect for home theater, boardroom office and pocket video which supports hdmi smartphone pc or laptop usb for movie and games for a chance to win head over to www.tendeka.com front slash podcast giveaway and if you want to know how to spell tendeka it's t-e-n-d-e-k-a interested in one of the best oilfield happy hours in houston come hang out with me and the rest of the oggn group every last tuesday of the month come out and enjoy a cold beer food and an opportunity to network with other professionals in oil and gas visit www.oilandgasglobalnetwork.com front slash events for more details and thank you for listening to oil and gas on shore if you're looking for more info visit www.oilandgasonshore.com and brandon thanks again for joining me today if people want to reach out to you to hear more about your story Are you on LinkedIn or do you even mess with social media? I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on there. Cool. Awesome. Well, that's a wrap for now. And always remember, oil and gas onshore, providing energy through innovation for the world, one well at a time. Signing out. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com.